6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39. But the main point is, all calendars change in 701 B.C. The 360-day year by the Romans adds five and a quarter days, which is the year we're familiar with. The Hebrews add six months every 19 years in various ways to bring the mean solar year and the, mean, the lunar years together. And uh, uh, all the different, uh, uh, some 14 different calendars all deal with it slightly differently. But it's interesting, something happened in 71 B.C. to cause the calendars to be adjusted and the conjecture that the Mars orbit adjustment may be one of the causes. It was interesting when I talked to Asher Kaufman about the temple, that uh, the idea of due east apparently had changed between the first and second temples. That's what creates some of the problems we talked about in the book on the coming temple. But it's also interesting that it occurs at the time of the sundial business. So how did God move the sundial back? I have no idea, but there's all kinds of ways. The precession of the earth could change. That's part of it. That's probably the long day of Joshua. You don't have to stop the earth, slow the earth down to have a long day. You can change the precession accomplish the same thing. It's not obvious until you study it. But, uh, or did God just do it refractively somehow? Could be that simple. It's not a big deal from my point of view. The real issue is, was it a good idea? These 15 years bring nothing but grief. Two years later, Hezekiah has a son by the name of Manasseh. And Hezekiah dies, Manasseh is 12 years old, and he takes over, and he is a piece of work. <laughs> he tears down the altars and puts back up all the idols. He takes Isaiah, and he, according to Talmudic sources and others, he was the one that apparently martyred Isaiah, this revered prophet. And he apparently sawed him in half with a wooden saw. And that's described in the Talmud, and it's alluded to in, a, in Hebrews 11, it would seem. So it's an interesting enigma here about time. The writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick, was recovered of his sickness. I said in cutting off my days, I will go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I sh shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I am cut off like a weaver, uh, like a weaver in my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness and even day, even unto night, wilt thou make an end of me. I am reckoned until morning that like a lion, so shall he break all my bones that from day, even to night, Wilt thou make an end of me like a crane or a swallow, so that I uh, did chatter? I did mourn like a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me, and he himself hath done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitter, bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou restore me and make me to live. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind my back. 
For Sheol cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down to the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the, uh, to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs, lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up for the house of the Lord? And so on. Now, quite an interesting dirge, um, but it also reveals the very limited view of death. See, you and I have, a, have the benefit of much more insight as to what really, you know, Paul could say, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was anxious to get out of here. While he's here, he preached Christ. But when time came, he was ready to go. And uh, the insight uh, that we have with death, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's the whole limitation of their view of death is, is evident from this passage, this dirge here. But um, our insights are quite different. Jesus brought life and immortality to light in the Gospels. And this is highlighted in 2 Timothy 1.10. And uh, Jesus freed us from the bondage of death in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And uh, see, death is to be absent from the body, but to be present with the Lord, we find from 2 Corinthians 5, 8. A whole different uh, uh, complexion here. Okay. I have to share with you one story. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but I, I can't help, can't resist mentioning something here. Um, I was raised uh, by foreign-born parents naturalized as American citizens. Uh, I came very late in my parents' life. My dad was 53 when I was born, and my mom thought she'd already been through a change of life, so I was a shock when I came along. But uh, my dad, uh, uh, when he was uh, 19, hid under a peasant woman's dress to, on a train to get to Hamburg, then stowed away on a steamer to come to America. Gutsy guy. He was born in 1881, so this was about the turn of the century. Um... But he a man of no education, just a good practical guy who just made it. Um, coming to a strange country, not speak, reading or writing, speaking English, it was gutsy, gutsy guy. But anyway, uh, so I grew up, uh, my dad was not really old enough to marry a grandfather. And I would see it was quite an age, unusual age difference. Uh, I got an appointment to the Naval Academy, and that was something that meant a lot to him. It blew him away. I mean, to go to college was a big deal in his mind, but the idea of going to the Naval Academy blew him away. And the way the academy works, um, you don't start in the fall, you start in the, in the summer. In June, you go back for what they call plebe summer. You have three months of indoctrination and stuff to get ready for the brigade when it arrives in the fall. And at the end of plebe summer, there's what they call parents' weekend. That's the last freedom you've got for, to, for the plebe years. We used to do it in the old days. And um, so I went back. I got the appointment, went back in June to the academy, going through plebe summer. Of course, the big deal was parents' weekend to have my mom and dad come out to the academy. Turned out that summer he had an automobile accident. Uh, he was involved in a head-on collision, and he was uh, about in his early 70s and overweight and, and uh, thrown through the windshield. No one expected him to live. Turned out there wasn't a bone broken, that he was bruised up pretty badly, but uh, uh family told me that his only dream when he was delirious in the hospital was he wanted to see me graduate. If he just see me graduate, so... But he seemed to recover enough so that come September for Parents Weekend with a cane and whatever, he was ambulatory enough to travel with my mom to visit me at the academy. So, uh, and that was neat. So I went through four years of the academy. And four years later, June week, he was able to come and see me graduate from the Naval Academy. That was a big deal for him. And uh, 
the Air Force, in those days, the um, both West Point and Annapolis supplied officers to the Air Force. The Air Force Academy hadn't started then, so it was a preferred option, and, and those that stood at the top of the class were able to get that kind of choice. So the Air Force, to spoil us rotten, offered us a couple of months of leave not to count as leave, and so we had a couple of months before we had to report for duty, so I spent the, the, the rest of that summer uh, up and down the East Coast with my Academy buddies before having to pick up my flight training stuff on the West Coast. Well, uh, while I was on this trip, I got word that my dad was killed. So I flew back to California, and uh, obviously, and uh, you know, for the funeral lesson. We were in the living room, and uh, it blew me away to realize that he was killed in a, in a head-on collision on the fourth anniversary of the first accident. God had given him four years. And I remember sitting there, it just uh, surprised me that, because uh, I, re- I, was, I was reminded of his prayer when he was on, uh, he knew the Lord. He came to the Lord in the later years while I was in high school. And, uh, but he, all he wanted to do was see me graduate. And God gave him four years. But it blew me away, because it's like God to do this. It was to the very day. The anniversary of his death, we realized, was the anniversary, as we put it all together, of the accident four years earlier. So whenever I think of Hezekiah getting 15 years old. Anyway, chapter 39. We've got one short one to go, and we've made it. Chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. <laughs> now, at this particular time, Babylon is a small town that's a pawn of Assyrian politics. It's well to the south. It's, it's, it's no big deal. But Merodach, Merodach was the god they worshipped. It's, it's partly title, so to speak. Yeah, he's the Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to king. This is the flatterers. Always watch out for the flatterers. Verse 2, Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. Amazing what we'll do when we're on an ego trip, isn't it? Dumb, guy. Dumb. In fact, notice the next phrase. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. That was stupid. That was dangerous. It's interesting to me as I go through the world, the guys that are the smart wealth is invisible. The stupid wealth is the flash and dash and what have you. And I'm not talking about just the facades of office in terms of a CEO or something. I'm talking about the serious wealth. The smart guys are invisible. The really wealthy guys are not on the Forbes 400 list or the Fortune 400 list or whatever. All that does is smoke out the insurance salesman, right? (laughs) Verse 3, then came Isaiah the prophet. Now Isaiah Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. And he just asks him a couple of questions. I learned a lot about Isaiah. This guy is bright. This guy is sharp. 
Isaiah the prophet, uh, then came Isaiah the prophet, then came. By the way, why wasn't Isaiah consulted first? I suspect any competent advisor say, hey, Hezekiah, cool it, dude. But no. Then came Isaiah the prophet Hezekiah and said, what said these men? And from where came they unto thee? Good basic questions. Hey, Hezekiah, what's going on here? And Hezekiah said, they are come from a far country unto me, even uh, from Babylon. Now, even in his reply, you can see the pride. I mean, these guys traveled 200 miles to see me. You know, I mean, I must be somebody, right? Then said he, as they had, what have they seen in thine house? I said, you know, he's so economic. Just a couple of questions. Who were they? Where are they from? And what did you show them? That's what he wants to know. Hezekiah answered, all that is in mine house. You notice he doesn't say, gee, coach, did I screw up? <laughs> all that is in mine house have they seen. You know, they've seen the precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the confidential defense plans. The house of the armor, all our top secret plans, all that was found in the trade. In other words, gee, Isaiah, I gave them plenty of incentive to take us over, and I also showed them where all our weaknesses are. See, when you brag about your strengths, you can find out also what the weaknesses are. That's obviously what he did. He, he showed them, it says back here, silver, gold, spices, precious ointment, and all the house of his armor. Oh, what kind of armor are you prepared for? You see, and, and, and any military mind can say, "Aha, uh -huh, okay, if they, that's not where I, do, I you know, you, you, you plan accordingly. In any case, Hezekiah uh, answered, All that is in mine house have they seen, there is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Hmm. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Dumb dude. No, no. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, whom thou shalt beget, they shall take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." Heavy words, right? Hey, Hezekiah, did you blow it? Right? Hezekiah's an interesting guy. He apparently knows it's not going to be in his lifetime. It's going to be later. It's interesting to see where his heart is. He really screwed up, obviously. And you notice how the chapter ends. Hezekiah's response to these heavy, heavy words from Isaiah. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, what's fascinating about this prediction is uh, this is a hundred years later that Babylon rises to power under Nebuchadnezzar and lays siege, right? And you might notice something. Uh, there's several places where it talks about the issue of Hezekiah, Second uh, Chronicles 36 and so forth. But turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. We'll take a note of here. Well, we'll take a chapter, the first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 1. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, obviously a descendant of Hezekiah, came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Why? Well, they had the list. They had their intelligence reports. It's worth going for. We've seen the treasuries, the silver, the gold. This is worth laying siege for. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house, part, part of the vessels. The Ark of the Covenant was never listed, but anyway. Part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar had a museum just north of the palace, put the vessels there. Seventy years later, Belshazzar takes them for the big party. Big mistake. Daniel 5. Verse 3, And the king spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and notice the next phrase, and of the king's seed, and of the princes. There is a hint, but no evidence, that Daniel might have been of royal blood. But we don't know that. See, Daniel was just among the captives. But the captives did include the king's seed. And back here in Isaiah 39, it says that his sons that he will beget shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Interesting, interesting issue. And by the way, it doesn't mean that Daniel was a eunuch. It says the king's sons were eunuchs. And, they, and Daniel reported to Ashpenaz, the king of the eunuchs, in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, situation. But one thing you and I jumped to the conclusion that not everybody that reported the eunuchs were, were made eunuchs, if you will. Potiphar was a eunuch. The word means it's a kind of officer in charge. And unless you had harem duties or something, it wasn't necessarily involved castration. And a member of Joseph was reported to the king of the eunuchs under Pharaoh, right? And he, he, he was obviously not a eunuch. <laughs> Potiphar's wife uh, understood that. And also he ends up, <laughs> and he, had, he, and he understood, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he had children and so forth, Ephraim and Manasseh and all that. Anyway, this ends Isaiah 1, right? Now, you all have heard, and I think we've covered this, but I just want to really nail it to the wall. Because uh, the, there's all these fancy, nicely bound, beautifully set up commentaries that talk about two Isaiahs. And frankly, that's a lot of Bandini. We have Isaiah. I'm sorry. Isaiah is the book of Isaiah. And all these people with these all the all the degrees after their names like to talk about one Isaiah. There's even a, a, a three Isaiah theory and all this. That's nonsense. I'm, I'm getting to the point, in, especially in theology, but some other place too. The more when you see all these degrees behind a name, those are all evidences of insecurity. Now the real question is: you can take Isaiah apart linguistically and demonstrate of its unity of design. You can go through all the scholastic arguments if you really have an appetite for that sort of thing. But I, uh, life's too short, and I, I would like to share with you one more time, if if uh, if it's by way of review, John chapter twelve. And you might remember this because it can save you a lot of pain when you run into these turkeys that try to sell you a fragmentation theory of any kind on the Bible. Whether it's the documentary hypothesis of Genesis, or I should say the Torah, or whether it's the two Isaiah theory, or any of the other uh, things that people contrive to pass a Ph.D. thesis somewhere. 
And that is in John chapter 12. We'll pick it up at verse 37 to give you the flavor. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that may echo familiar to you because it's the opening phrase of the highest ground in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, as some people call it, Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm? That's, that's from Isaiah 53. He's quoting from Isaiah. Where? From 53. Look at verse 40. He hath blinded the eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. When did Isaiah see the throne of God? In Isaiah chapter 6. This is a quote from Isaiah 6. And the verse that you can embrace and mark in your Bible is verse 39. Because between Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, verse 39 appears. Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. John tells you the same Isaiah wrote the quote in verse 38 and the quote in verse 40. The same Isaiah wrote 53 and verse six, uh, chapter 6. Chapter 6, of course, being in so-called Isaiah 1, and of course Isaiah 53 being after chapter 40 in Isaiah 2. What this tells you, the Holy Spirit has saved you hours of boring library research. <laughs> but he also, the Holy Spirit has anticipated every devious doctrine, notion, heresy to come on the horizon. No matter what hits you, somewhere in the Scripture you'll find the Holy Spirit has expressly nailed it to the wall. Well, what about reincarnation? Hebrews 9, it is a pain appointed unto man but once to die, and after this the judgment. That's got nothing to do with Enoch and Elijah and all that. It has to do with the doctrine of reincarnation. And the more you go through the Scripture, the interesting thing that you'll discover, be sensitive to the supernatural Engineering that has gone on with this text. These 66 books written by 40 authors, but really orchestrated, designed. Every word, every detail, every number by the Holy Spirit. In anticipation of every devious, satanic doctrine to come across the threshold. But as long as we're in Isaiah, don't let anyone sell you two Isaiahs. Don't let anyone sell you fragmentation. In fact, it's the other way around. The liberating discovery of the Bible is that it's, an, it's integrity whether it's Moses or Isaiah or Daniel or John or Paul, what's fascinating, there are 40 different guys that the Holy Spirit has used to put together 66 books that have an integrity of design that is flabbergasting the more you study it. Every word, every number, every place name, specifically there for a purpose. You can take the genealogies. The first time the gospel appears in the Bible is Genesis 5. You take the genealogy of Adam and on, and it spells out the gospel. Man appointed mortal sorrow, etc. It lays it out. Take the names. Anytime you see a genealogy, or the list of the twelve tribes, it's always in a different order. Take the meaning of the names. You have those in Genesis 37, 38. Take the meaning of those names. Lay it out. There's a sentence. It's all designed. Now they're discovering you can count letters and discover things. And I won't get into all that, or time's up, but you get the flavor. The point is, don't let anyone sell you a bill of goods about Isaiah. 
because the Holy Spirit put it there just like he put Paul's letters together, just like he put the Gospels together. Why? Why did God bother? Because his proudest work, his highest achievement, was not the creation, magnificent and breathtaking as it is. That's not his biggest work. He can call that into another one into existence whenever he likes. The important thing is his redemption. I, have, I know that for two reasons. How much space in the Bible is devoted to the creation? A couple of chapters in Genesis, a few Psalms. We're going to find some very exciting chapters next time we get together in Isaiah. Uh, but there's a few chapters, Genesis, a few Psalms, Isaiah, a couple of places. That's about it. Chapter 2 in Job. You've covered the creation as far as the Bible is concerned, pretty much. What about the redemption? Well, gee, you'll go through the book of Genesis, most of the book of Genesis. You know, Adam, coats of skins, all of that. The ark, I mean, it's all redemption. Well, certainly Exodus, that's what it's all about. Exodus, the Passover, it's the redemption. Leviticus, that's what it's all about. Redemption, all the sacrifice. Numbers, sure, the wanderings, you bet. You know, Deuteronomy, the law again, yeah. Certainly the prophets, God's, not prophesying the creation, prophesying the redemption, right? The gospels, epistles, gee, the whole Bible, virtually, is the redemption. There's another way you tell how important it is. What did it cost? Well, what did it cost God to create the universe? I don't want to be irreverent because it's magnificent, far beyond our comprehension, and yet it's my impression that God can call another one in casually whenever he felt like it. Spend six days and let's build another one. What did the redemption cost him? Whoa. Cost him a lot. Cost him a son. The redemption is his high ground. And that's what he has communicated to us. The extremes he's gone to that you and I might live, that you and I might have life, that you and I might dwell with him forever. Well, gee, is there life on other planets? I keep getting hit that one. If there is, I got a question. Is the person on the other planet sinless? Probably not. Well, if he sinned, then Christ would have had to die for him too. Somehow it doesn't compute, does it? So that's why I'm a skeptic. Carl Sagan, forgive me. Nonsense. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.